girl. Hi, everybody. Hey, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And, and this, this is... is Dead, Dead Time Stories. A weekly podcast where Sarah and I get together to talk about ghost stories, true crime, conspiracies. We talk about cults. Wink, wink. Uh, <laughs> nudge, nudge. Say no more. <laughs> we talk about paranormal, supernatural, just the generally spooky, eerie, weird, whatever strange things we want to talk about that week because it's our show. And not yours. <laughs> Sorry about so, it. So this is this is special. This is what we're doing this week. Um, are we going right into it? Are we bantering? I mean, I don't... We could banter if we want. What do you have to banter about? We're supposed to get snow tomorrow. We're supposed to get 10 Yeah, Philly is supposed to get a snow. crazy amount of snow tomorrow. So by the time this episode comes out, you'll know if that happened or not. We're, you know, we're weird about putting out what's going to happen. <laughs> I know, right? I, honestly, though, I really hope that I do get a snow day because I would love to spend my work day just editing this episode and not at work. But we'll see what happens. But like, you know, put it out into the ether that tomorrow's going to be a Dead Time Story snow day. And you know what? So's Thursday. Um, I know it won't be a snow day for me because the snow isn't expected until the middle of the day. And my workday starts at 6.30 a.m. So I will already be at work tomorrow. <laughs> I know. But, I saw that, too. And I was like, I'll already have done like half of a day by 12. Right. But, so uh, I was I I'll was hoping, it. though, that the other people at my office, but because, you know, I care about them, too. So I hope that they get a half day. I will still end up working a regular day, most likely. But I hope that the other people I work with get to end their day early. Because the last time we had a crazy snow day, I worked a 13-hour day, and I'm not going to do that again. Oof, I remember that. <sighs> so <Rough>. do I. <laughs> Rough times. It was it was a bad day. It was a bad day. You know who else had a bad day? Um, Daniel Powder? Who wrote that song? Oh, no. I wasn't going to go with that. Who did write that song? <laughs> is that who that is? That's a one-hit wonder, is that right? that his name? I don't even know if that's the person's name. Did Part of me is like, did I make that a bad day? You take Daniel Powder. Look P o w t e r. Look at you. Good job. And I you're welcome that. for everyone listening to this because now you're going to have that song stuck in your head for the rest of the fucking day. Take a one time. Uh, no, what were you going to say? <laughs> Who else did have a bad day? I was going to say all the people of Jonestown on November 18th. Oh, but no. like... <laughs> Your segue was a little nicer. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, they did have a have a bad day, unless they were into it. You know what, though? That was the last bad day they ever had. It sure was. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Ooh, three minutes in, we're starting out strong, y'all. Starting Here out strong. Go. I think uh, this is going to go into the vaults is one of the best episodes. I don't know. Uh, I didn't know how else to bring it back around. <laughs> No, um, <laughs> you could be selling monkeys door to door. Uh, I hope Val picked up everything that was on our shopping list, including Kool Aid. <laughs> uh, it's excuse me, miss, it's Flavor Aid. So get it right. Um, the phrase "drink the Kool Aid," as we've talked about, is uh, from is, is from Jonestown. Is from this story, but it was actually Flavor Aid. But we're not there yet. We are not there yet. It's gonna take a while to get there are we doing uh so we're what are we saying this week <laughs> so smooth hey sarah <laughs> hey stephanie y'all ready, ready to talk, talk about, about some, some jones, jones? 
<laughs> I did it wrong. Jones. I was like, are we not? Town. Are we not? <laughs> it's Jonestown. It's part two of Sarah's Jonestown extravaganza. Oof. Jonestown Maseragonza. <laughs> Opalance. You <laughs> drink everything. <laughs> Opalance. You die right now. Okay, so not right now. I wanted to, before we fully jump into it, I do want to give a disclaimer because at the end-ish of this episode, I will be playing audio clips from what is known as the death tape of Jonestown, which is the last audio recording um, of the last hours of the people at Jonestown. Um, So for some people, it could be upsetting, but it's going to be a hot minute before we get there. What I wanted wanted to start out with was a little refresher for those of y'all who weren't here last week. And if you weren't, go back and, and listen to last week's episode because there was a lot of information and you really needed to get caught up on what's been happening with Jimmy Jr. and his life and what is now the People's Temple. Previously on Dead Time Stories. Previously, little Jimmy Jr. found his true calling as a cult leader and somehow found a wife. It was Flavor Aid. And Flavor-Aid. At this point in time, he doesn't seem to have taken a liking to Flavor-Aid, but we know that that changes. And he's helping, um, you know, black, poor, and middle class people. That's where we started. Yeah, he's actually doing good work. And we're not totally done with that yet. So we're we left off. Good old Jimmy Jr. was selling monkeys, spider monkeys, door to door. And he had just upgraded his church to a brand new building and had renamed, rebranded the People's Temple. People spelled without an apostrophe. Ugh, I just want to point I that for- out again. Ugh, I forgot <laughs> that. Ugh. And God, with that, that, Stephanie, I wanted to start you out with the audio that I was not able to give you last week, which is the audio of our dear friend talking about the first time that she met Jim Jones. Okay. The first time I met Jim Jones was Easter 1953. My mother-in-law, Edith Cardell, had a monkey and it hung itself. And she wanted to replace the (laughs) monkey. So she looked in the Indianapolis Star. And in that Indianapolis Star was Jim Jones's ad that he had some monkeys to sell. So it was through that that she met Jim Jones and came back saying that he'd invited her to church this next Sunday. (laughs) So then she went to church with him on Sunday, and that woman was a lifelong follower from that point on. Oh, yeah. Oh, of course. I mean, it was such a good deal on a spider monkey. I can't. Just like the matter of fact way that she says monkey had hung hung itself. And she needed to buy a new one. Why? She saw Jim Jones's ad. I still don't I still don't understand if the monkey hung itself on purpose. That's the part that haunts me. That's the part I just need to know. Did the monkey hang himself on purpose? The one thing that I will say that I have learned about the Jonestown story is that the more and more you look into it and the more and more you research and study, the more and more questions you're going to have and you're not going to get answers. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I will never know why that monkey hung itself. We will never know why that monkey hung itself. Oh my God, that's never. wild. Yep. All right. So I'm going to take a sip of my wine and we're going to dive into the meat and potatoes. Go for it. I'm going. Oh, God. Oh, my leg's asleep. Hold on. Oh, this is, this is all a mess. Everything's a mess. Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Why would so, God let this happen? <laughs> Why would Jim Jones let this happen? So we know that the pimple, pimples, uh-oh, the people's temple, the people's temple, uh, they were making money by selling monkeys, as we just heard. Right. But the other way they were making money was by, the way I phrased it, is adopting the elderly. So the congregation for the People's Temple always was, but from the beginning up until the end, was a vast majority made up of elderly. Elderly people looking for help. Because like yeah. we talked in last the at last episode, the People's Temple started as a place that was there to really help the community. They were there to help the people who, for whatever reason, they weren't able to help themselves. Right. Something else was going on. That's what they were there for. And so Jim Jones, it began with him taking individual members into his home. And him and his wife, Marceline, would take them into their house and take care of them and basically turned their personal home into a nursing home of sorts. And this ended up expanding into two actual nursing homes that they founded and, are those, and worked at. Are those nursing homes like still around? That I don't know. Okay. I don't think so. I, I mean, like, the buildings they, like, might still be there, but they're not still. Right. Like, Obviously, they wouldn't still be owned by them. The people. Right. Temple. Yeah. No, yeah. no, no. I was just no, like, did so they, they found didn't. these, like, that are still around? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, but, yeah, they opened these nursing homes. They were taking care of the elderly in their community. A really good thing. Yes. But they right? were also able, with that, to sort of convince their elderly congregation to sign their homes over to Jim Jones. Because yeah. now they're going to be living in the nursing home. Yeah. So sign over your home to Jim Jones. You don't need it anymore. You don't need it. And this basically gave Jim the leases to their houses and they then he would absorb all of their assets and all of their money. He would also begin collecting their Social Security. Jesus and eventually Christ. he would talk a nice handful of them into signing over power of attorney, which you might remember us talking about in the Mills family murder story, which started this whole fucking domino Jonestown effect. Right. But that the Mills had signed over power of attorney to Jim Jones before they changed their name. And one of the reasons they changed their name was because... They needed to start over. Right. Here's a, one of the main ways that People's Temple gained money began with this, with the nursing home and with taking the money and the assets and the social security of the elderly. And then it moved into sort of your normal congregational tithing. And so everyone in the congregation was giving money. Right. Now, a lot of people ask, like, why didn't people just leave the cult? Well, here we go. Because Jim Jones had power of attorney over your fucking life. Right. Like, they literally couldn't. They literally couldn't. 
As time went on, like most cults, everyone was taught to give over as much of their money as possible and to live well below their means. Don't buy anything new. You don't need any of that. This is a socialist give your money church. To the We're cult. all giving right. everything to the church so that we then can all enjoy these fruits of our labor, like a nursing home, like Jim Jones ends up opening a few soup kitchens. He's like, these things are going back to the church. They're going back to the community. That's why you're giving your money. Also, don't buy new pants and don't buy a new dress. <laughs> As this is we get closer I wanna, to Jonestown. This is why I keep making, I say jokes, but this is why I keep saying I want to be a cult leader. Like, you know, just give me all your money and listen to all the things I believe everything in and tell me I'm great. Exactly. Just give me everything. Tell me I'm great and let me make the rules. And I'll and make you feel really I good want. about yourself. <laughs> Which is what Jim Jones does. Yes. So as uh, we get closer and closer to Jonestown, we will see not only obviously everyone giving money, but we start to see the congregates start to turn on each other and they will snitch on each other and they'll be like yo Josie Ann got herself a fresh new TV I saw it through the window of her house last week I saw Goody Proctor with the devil I saw saw Goody Proctor with a new dress that's not allowed (laughs) (laughs) she got it from the devil which is spending her own money somewhere on whatever the fuck she wants because it's her money which is the devil Oh, gross. And not only that, when they were snitching on each other later on, I'm sort of jumping ahead in the timeline, but later on is when you'd start to see the beatings and people would, they'd snitch on their other, they'd snitch on a Goody Proctor and Goody Proctor would be put up in front of the congregation and she could be verbally abused. She could be actually beaten with a paddle. Um, There are instances where other congregates like, other members of the cult will beat, say, who, you know, Goody the Proctor. They'll yeah. just punch them, beat them. There's audio tapes of all of this. I digress. We're still in somewhat of the happy times of the church. Oh, my God. We're just kind of starting to snitch. I was going to say, we're kind of starting to get where, like, people are like, that's weird. I don't know if I'm into that. But only a little Honestly, bit. Honestly, we're not there yet. No, oh they're still giving free reign. They're still like, this is great. So the money is going towards the temple and the good things that were happening. And they were seeing it. So they were seeing the nursing homes go up. They saw the soup kitchen go up. They were There were multiple clothing drives organized in Indiana. There was a youth program put together that was successfully, successfully helping keep kids off the street. A whole bunch of, when you look at them, really good things for this Sure, community. of course. <laughs> but we wouldn't be here if it didn't start going sour. And Jimmy Jr. loves the power. He loves the money. He gets power hungry. And like he you do. starts taking, you know, when he was a kid, he was into Hitler. And he was like, that's really cool. I like his presentation style. Well, now <laughs> I'm into he's all found- this. He's found someone else to latch on to. And this other person is another cult leader named Father Divine. I'm not going to get into all of this because this is another crazy fucking rabbit hole I could have gone down about Father Divine. But Father Divine is basically Jim Jones' light because he did it first. And Jim Jones took what Father Divine did and amplified it 
by 10% to become what he was. So Father Divine was telling his, would tell his members, you live below your means, while Father Divine dressed in the finest clothes, did this, did that, presented himself as a god to his people, totally captivated his audience, 100% like charismatic, entertaining, loud, boisterous, all of these things that Jim Jones saw and said, wow, he has a following. I should do that so that I can get what he has. Well, and I was going to, <laughs> this is for another time, but I'm like, is Father Divine who opened the Divine Lorraine Hotel? Do you know about that? that I don't know. Okay. Well, because I, I know it was. for another time. Sorry. I'm like, I know that was open. So that's in Philadelphia. And I looked it up recently because i probably was like, What's not the history of this he building was mainly working on the west coast well and i looked him up and it says that he died in philadelphia pennsylvania oh maybe like i said i Sorry. didn't get into that session section of it because i am only halfway through my first page the answer to my and question is yes, pages. but we will not get into that right now. <laughs> no, because listen, here's the thing about Father Divine. Father Divine had a wife and he presented himself like Jim Jones as a healer. And so when his wife died, he just took a little white Canadian mistress and said, my wife's soul jumped into her body. So oh now God. she's my wife and she gets all the same power. Yes. So... That's something that I could not even begin to go down. Just note that Jim Jones began to start taking money from the coffers of the temple for himself. And he started dressing real fancy like we see later on. Yeah. Because of Father Divine. Yeah. After the massacre, the FBI found multiple bank accounts that jimmy jr had opened and all in all they said that it amounted to around 10 million dollars oh, that he'd shit. been stashing away and he'd been i was gonna say hoarding to. yeah <laughs> the wealth and he could only give his people flavor aid like he couldn't like right like he couldn't even afford the kool-aid the piece of shit he was like y'all you really need to give up your life for me but also we're on a budget we got to cut 3% everywhere. Which, guess what? Flavor rate is 3% cheaper than Kool-Aid. It's just a rough guess. Problem solved. <laughs> Problem solved. Thank you, Stephanie. That's, You'll get to die last. They fixed their entire budget just by switching to generic. Just by switching to Flavor aid. You say 15% on your car insurance when you switch to Geico. <laughs> the they say 3% house. when they switch to Flavor aid. That's not uh, impressive. <laughs> I'm like losing all of my train of thought. So, so sorry. while Jimmy Jr. is doing all this and starting to dip into the money, him and his wife, Marceline, are also building their family. And by building, I mean like adopting because they only have one biological child together. And they like to say that they were working on building their rainbow family. So in 1954, they adopted their first child, Agnes, who was part Native American. And to be honest, that's really all we know about her. There's not a lot else about Agnes other than some like pictures and papers that are like, Agnes was there too. Uh, and unfortunately, <laughs> Agnes dies in Jonestown after being adopted by the Joneses and living a seemingly boring life in the middle of a cult. 
Until, yeah, it was like until they killed her as part of the mass killing. Yep. Uh, 1955 to 1959, they adopted three Korean-American children named Lou, Stephanie, and Suzanne. And in 1959, they had their one and only biological child, Stefan Gandhi. But I think he goes by Stephen. Oh, my God. I'm not sure. And in 1961, Stefan Hitler Gandhi. Ooh. That's maybe redacted. (laughs) Stefan redacted Gandhi. Hitler was there in the middle. Uh 1961, they become the first white couple in Indiana to adopt a black child, and they named him Jim Jones Jr. Of course. Which, honestly, I feel like should be a slap in the face to Stefan. (laughs) Because he was there. He's the biological child, and they went with Stefan. Hitler redacted Gandhi Jones for his fucking name. (laughs) Oh my God. Uh, But Jim Jones Jr. is the last child that they adopted. There will be one more significant child in this story, but he'll come up at the end. Now, between 1961 and 1963, Jim Jones packed up his whole family and they went to Brazil. So there's a lot that I could get into about this, but I'm going to leave it pretty basic. But he spends two years in Brazil with his family. This is where he first visits Guyana. So he visits Guyana 10 years before he actually looks into getting land over there. And he's over there because he knows that Brazil and Guyana specifically are working towards becoming a communist social socialist nation. And so he's like, oh, I could like fuck around with that with my people. And he goes over to Brazil. He leaves his church here in the hands of a few pastors, takes his family, goes to Brazil with the intention of evangelizing, expanding, finding more people, seeing what he can see over there. Overall, the entire trip was a fucking bust. He didn't end up really meeting anybody. He did make some connections that will work in his favor later on when it comes time to get Guyana. But Foreshadowing. (laughs) He's there for two years, and while he's gone, everything kind of runs just fine without him. And these separate pastors who have kind of taken over are sort of breaking off and taking some people back with them. Oh, does he have feelings about that? Yeah. I mean, are you kidding me? The man cannot lose. No, I know. That's what I was like, because I'd like to hear what those feelings are. Those feelings are he's fucking pissed. Mm -hmm. And so he comes back. To America, because he's like, well, you're taking my people. My church is dwindling. Oh, and all that great civil work I was doing in the city and in the community, that all kept going and running and expanding without him there. So it's basically like he left and everything got a little bit better and then kept moving forward without him. When he had been there this whole time wanting to imprint a legacy, wanting to do that, which is, again, foreshadowing for what ends up happening later. So he comes back. 
and he, he's like, uh, I got to do something different. I need to get my people back in the door. I need to get more people back in the door and I need to revive this. And he learned. So infuriating. Huh? I said it's so infuriating because uh, I'm like, obviously, he's a piece of shit because the way that the, we all know this goes. But I'm just like any sane, rational person would feel good, like come back and be like, wow, like I really set this up so well that like I could walk away from it and it's still going and it's even better. Like I put all the right people in place because look how well they've done. Like, like, That's, you know what I mean? That, like, that of was, course, but you're dealing with but, someone right, but who he's not a wants to person. be the right, center exactly. of it all. So he can't Correct. just take the credit for the past. He needs like... To constantly, he needs to leave this legacy. He needs to do that. And so. Like, you already left a legacy. Oh, it doesn't matter. I mean, he feels like he did it. He's a monster. I get it. I get it. It's it's a slow burn, but (laughs) essentially Brazil doesn't work out so great for him. He comes back. He feels like he's got nothing here. So he's got to revamp things. So another thing he had learned from Father Divine was that. Honestly, all go- all good and successful cult leaders are nothing without some enemies. Because how do you keep your group around when you're a cult leader? You scare right. them into sticking around. You've got to, right, you have to have that us versus them mentality. There has so to you be have to have an, a them. There has to be an unknown enemy. There has to be a them. So when Jim Jones comes back from Brazil is when we first start seeing him talk about an enemy and start talking about issues or not issues but uh people coming after them the problem was is that jim jones didn't have anybody coming after him he didn't have any enemies surprisingly enough being for someone who stood for desegregation and civil rights everyone was fucking fine with jim jones do it they were like you're good so he didn't have any enemies he was white he talked nice at this time didn't have At the shades time. yet. So much like his faith healings, Jim Jones had to fucking make that shit work for himself. And mm-hmm. the first of a few assassination attempts, I use oh, air God. quotes, on Jim Jones. Jimmy Jr. walked out of the front, like walked out the front door of his house with a gun shot the gun at one of the columns on the front porch of the house and then ran back inside being like, someone tried to shoot me. Stop. Yes. I shit you not. And they were like, Jim, you're holding a gun. He's like, he put it in my hand. This is crazy. No. No, he didn't say that. I made that up. But he did go out. He shot at the columns on his house and he came back inside and was like someone just tried to shoot me i told you we've got enemies people are coming after us they're not happy with what we stand for they're not happy with what we're doing and now he has a story on sunday to give to the church so he tells the church now he's got an enemy out there and then me enemies coming out coming after them he's like because of what they're doing remember when there was only one set of footprints that was them running the other way I was going to say, remember when there was only one set of footprints? Now there's like 20 because they're surrounding you. (laughs) But it's not just an enemy just to Jimmy Jr. It's an enemy to the church as a whole. And it's an enemy to everything they've been working on. Everything Everything they stand for. Right, exactly. Everything they stand for. The unknown enemy 
will be a feature of the People's Temple and Jonestown up until the very final moments. And it's here in the beginning where he plants the seed in his followers' minds. He is setting up the paranoia that he ultimately will fall victim to himself. Jim Jones was a paranoid person. And now it just starts to spiral out of control. Yeah, of course. In 1965, so he came back in 63, two years later, in order to escape an unknown enemy and the fear of nuclear war, which Jimmy Jr. was 100% actually scared of nuclear war in America. He was setting up that the Russians and the Cold War were going to be this big deal and that nuclear war in the U.S. was inevitable. So in order to escape it, the temple moved with 70 families, about 140 people, half of whom, let's remember, are African-American, to Ukiah, California. So they moved from Indiana to California because Jim Jones read in an Esquire article, I believe, that the best places to hide from nuclear fallout, one of them was California. So he moved them all to California. Sure. Sure. California, Jones believed, would be a safe zone, Uh, In the event of nuclear war, and he believed it was a place where racial equality could grow, which he is right about that second part. Now, while they're in California, we begin to see the People's Temple align and go down the road that ultimately leads to Jonestown. And one of the big factors in this move is Jimmy Jr. finally taking over complete control of every single thing about the church. When he came back from Brazil, he was out of control. He'd been gone for two years. The congregation was a fraction of it was before, like we talked about. He was losing his hold. And so he did what every paranoid cult leader does, and he made sure everything had to be approved, finalized, chosen, done through him. Yeah. Now, they did create a thing called the... Uh, The planning commission. So he does develop the planning commission, which is like a board for the church. But everything still had to go through Jim Jones. Like Jim Jones was still the head of the board. The board was kind of a facade, etc. Yeah. Now, because of limited expansion in the Redwood Redwood Valley, Ukiah area, it eventually seemed necessary to move the church's seat of power to an urban area. So in 1970, the temple began holding services in San Francisco and Los Angeles, and it established permanent facilities in those cities in 1971 and 1972. And also in 1970, we begin to see Jimmy Jr. reaching out to a different demographic. So as opposed to going out to the lower lower class African-American demographic, he's now pitching and evangelizing to rich white people. Rich white people. Why? Because they have money. money. Yeah, because they have money. Duh. A little more power. (laughs) And at that point in time, the white people were like, we want to make a change in the society that we're seeing. How can we do that? Oh, let's go join this racially um, equal, like racial equality, equal civil rights church. That sounds exactly like what we want to stand for. Right. Rich, well-meaning white people. Exactly. They're like, we tried. And at this point, it kind of was like the good years. Because, yeah, the white people were coming in and being like, wow, this is really nice. And putting money into it. And the African-Americans were like, cool. I mean, like, that helps us, too. And it was a racially (laughs) integrated church. And another reason 
why people gave Jim Jones such a big fucking hall pass card for all the crazy yeah. shit he did. It was because they were like, but this other thing is really, really good. And if we got mad at him because he was like fucking a whole bunch of people and had a fuck schedule... Ah, just let the dude do his thing. I guess that's fine. And if he wants to fuck, you should let him fuck you. Because, like, <laughs> look at how great this other stuff is. Oh, my God. Uh. At this point, Jimmy Jr. is also starting to change his sermons. He's starting to become, become a little more outwardly communist. And he also starts outwardly deriding Christianity, calling it a flyaway religion, rejecting the Bible as a tool to oppress women and non-whites, which I mean, like, it is, and denouncing like, yeah, like, a... Uh, quote, that's the worst part, is is they mix it with a little bit of right? truth. And so right? Right? Like, but some of what you're saying you're like, is, like, yeah. so spot on that, like, he thinks that, like, sometimes they can trick people. Yes. Like, he's right about all these other things. So if he wants to fuck you, let him fuck you, because, like, all this other <laughs> stuff. Because he's right. <laughs> So just let him fuck. fuck. He also began denouncing his sky god, which was my other favorite fucking coin, like phrase that he coined. Yeah, Um, the sky god. He wrote a booklet titled The Letter Killeth, which criticizes the King James Bible. Jim Jones also began preaching that he himself was the reincarnation of Gandhi, Father Divine, Jesus, Buddha, and Vladimir Lenin. Yeah, yeah. Well, because if God, he also believes that God isn't necessarily one thing, but that God is love. And if you have love, you are God and you have God in you. So why can't he also be Father Divine? And why can't he also be Jesus? Why can't he be all those things and be all those things for you? (laughs) He was quoted as saying, what you need to believe in is what you can see. If you see me as your friend, I'll be your friend. If you see me as your father, I'll be your father. For those of you that don't have a father, if you see me as your savior, I'll be your savior. If you see me as your God, I'll be your God. He also instructed the people in his congregation to call him father. And they do call him father. Lots of times they reference him to father. And when we get into Jonestown, they're all so familiar with each other. It's a little creepy. They just call him dad. Just dad. <laughs> yeah. Dad brought us here. Dad's got this plan. I trust in you, dad. Yep. It's Jim Jones. So now we start to see a turning point. We hit 1973. And the one of the big things that makes him also start to go downhill is he deals with what is called the Gang of Eight. And the Gang of Eight is the first... I don't think it's the largest amount of people to defect all at once but the gang of eight was a was a group of children of major players in the church who all decided to defect and so with normal defectors he could be like they left the church fuck them shun them that's their own fault they're going to be screwed now But then these kids, so these eight children went off to college. They were promising smart kids, children of prominent members of the church, and the church paid for them to go to college. And so they left. 
they went to college and they did what a lot of kids did and they went, oh my God, I think I was raised in a cult. <laughs> and they. Which is what most kids say when they get to college. Did you not fair. say that when you went to college? <laughs> That's what we all say, right? You're at college and you're like, wait, was I raised in a cult? I'm pretty sure I was raised in a cult. They call that the come away from Jesus moment. (laughs) (laughs) Come to Jesus moment, the hey, never mind Jesus moment. (laughs) The I'm a little busy Jesus moment. And uh, so these kids went to college (laughs) and said, hey, I might have been raised in a cult. And they left. But because, again, they were kids of prominent members of the church and the church had been paying for them to go to college. Jim Jones had to kind of change his stance to the outward congregation and say, you know, they're, they're children. If they choose to come back, welcome them back with open arms. We need to be kind to them. However, behind closed doors, Jimmy Jr. called the planning commission together, which again is the board. And he called the planning t- commission together. And this is where we see the first traces of a mass suicide begin to have those seeds planted. In light of the eight of them defecting, Jimmy Jr. warned that there would be a mass defection of the entire church. And if there was, then they should all kill themselves as an act of protest. Ultimately, of course, the PC doesn't do that or anything close to that at that moment. And the rest of the... But he does that. He says that and then just kind of reads the room. Exactly. Like, he's like, you know, we should all just, like, kill ourselves. Like, what do you, what, what would you guys think what if that was, like, think? the plan? Like, who would be into that? Like, like I'm not saying we're, I'm not going to do it, girl. I'm just thinking about it. I'm not going to do it. But, like, what if I did it? What if I did it? <laughs> like, like that's what he's doing. He's, like, just testing the waters. Like, just, you know, was, is that a thing you guys would be down for? Like, me neither. No, like, me neither. I just wanted to, like, I... I just wanted to see, like, if you guys were into it. But, like, if I was really down with it and because I'm your leader and because I sort of, like, tell you what to do, like, wouldn't you want to prove your loyalty to me? Like, would would you love me enough to do this with me? Like, I'm not going to tell you you have to. I'm not going to tell you you have to. But, like, like, if I did. But, like, (laughs) if you loved me, would you? Would you? (laughs) So... (laughs) backtrack to the pc the good old planning commission the planning commission was the temple's governing board but i like to think of it as jimmy jr's little personal fuck harem so he basically (laughs) asked you to be on the planning committee if he needed you to like kind of do something or if he wanted to fuck and it's basically just all the people that he wanted to fuck and when i made the joke earlier about him having a fuck schedule that's not a fucking joke i assumed that was not a joke yes and unfortunately i assumed that was legitimate one of his earlier followers who was like enraptured in love with jim jones and she wanted to be on that fuck schedule like crazy she was like put me on there three times a day put me in coach put me in and he said no he said i'm really sorry you're not my type i'm not gonna sleep with you but you know what i'll do you one better you can be the one in charge of my fuck schedule stop Yep. Oh my god! He's like, you can be the one to handle you can my be in fuck, of the fuck calendar. Schedule. Just like, don't ever put yourself. Don't put on yourself it. on. I will know <laughs> if you did. So don't. Oh my god! Yes, 
I, oh my God, right? Uh, and again, I also want to point out that it was men and women alike that he Oh, would I fuck. assumed that too. <laughs> yes. Um, just for the listener out there, uh, Jimmy right. Jr. was, loved everyone. He was swinging all the ways. S- th- apparently he had a big dick and he way. swung it everywhere. What was it? I didn't write this one down, but he at one point described himself as being the only true heterosexual because he would love everyone and everyone else was homosexual. You know what's gay? (laughs) (laughs) Only fucking. Only fucking one gender. That's so gay. I'm so, I am so fucking straight. I could fuck anybody. Anybody. Get over, pull your That's pants down. That's how fucking straight right now, I am. You big homo. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's exactly <laughs> what it was. But I mean, are we surprised? Because remember, this no. is the dude who was raised by Lunette, Lynette, Lynetta, who claimed that in a past life she had done wonderful, wonderful things, but in this one, other people ruined it. So it's just a fucking bust. <laughs> But in this life, her destiny was just to give birth to this kid, I guess. To give birth to Jim Jones, who is the one and only true heterosexual. (laughs) This uh, Jim Jones sexual exploits are another rabbit hole you could go down because he also gets caught by the cops once. But thank God he had a lot of political influence because then he got out of it. So in 1970... (laughs) Thank God if they kept him, all those people wouldn't have died. Yeah. Well, Stephanie, that's, again, it's another rabbit hole. There are so many questions you will uncover and ask yourself learning about Jonestown, and I don't have an answer for any of them. 1972 is when the first public expose is released about the People's Temple. It's known as the Kinsolving series, and a guy named Lester Kinsolving sort of followed the cult for a little while to write about them. Right. And... What was going to be a seven-part story on People's Temple released the first four parts in the San Francisco Examiner and the Indianapolis Star. Now, while it's not exactly a damning piece of journalism, it did begin to put the People's Temple's name in a household. Uh, It began to put the People's Temple in as a household name. It's like a household name, yeah. And it did report about how Jimmy Jr. would throw Bibles down in the church to exhibit how powerless a fucking Bible was. And so Jimmy Jr. was like, this is creating a big enough fuss. Or like, Jimmy Jr. is like, this is bringing enough attention. I'm going to create a fuss. I'm over this. And they created a big enough fuss that both of the papers canceled the series after the fourth installment. So the last three installments were never released. But again, it wasn't even that bad. It didn't touch on the abuse. It didn't touch on the fuck schedule. It didn't touch on the money laundering. Like, none of that was touched. But... Right. That article was enough to move Jimmy Jr.'s paranoia up a few more notches. So in 1974, the People's Temple leases just under 4,000 acres of land in Guyana for what Jimmy Jr. said would be the promised land. This was going to be a place for them to build a socialist paradise while also escaping the now growing scrutiny of the media 50 members in 1974 went down and began creating the utopia. But let's remember, it's in a fucking jungle and it's going to take some time. 
So in yeah. 1974, they leased this land, sort of planning in 10 years to have it ready for about a thousand people. So just keep that in mind. God damn it. 1975, Jimmy Jr. reaches his height of power in San Francisco, helping elect George Moscone as mayor and Harvey Milk as city supervisor. Harvey Milk was a huge supporter of Jonestown. And then oh as soon God. as the massacre happened, he was like, I don't know her. <laughs> Jonestown who, bitch? I don't know. I don't. Jim Jones never I heard of him. Never heard of her. Never heard of him. But on this point, George Moscone in turn names Jimmy Jones as head of San Francisco's housing authority in 1975. In 1977. And just as he rose... He fucking fell. And the New West expose. He fucking fell. (laughs) The New West released an expose in 1977. And this one was the big story that broke that consisted of the past members speaking out. So if you remember, the Mills family spoke out. This was the expose that they spoke in. This expose talked about the abuse talked about the taking advantage of the elderly, the money laundering. It had alleged that Jimmy Jr. had hoarded $5 million in property and cash from its members. Now, Jimmy Jr. himself got wind of the story right before it actually broke, and he made a break for Guyana at that point. He sure fucking did. Yeah. So he ran to Guyana and he urged Temple members to follow him there. And he was like, listen, it's time. It's time to go to the promised land. We're ready for you. This is great. You're going to continue to live in scrutiny if you stay there. I'm going to Jonestown. You should come with me. Also, you know, like, if you really loved me, wouldn't you do it? Right. (laughs) So by late 1978, the population in Guyana at the settlement he now so originally and creatively named Jonestown had grown to over 900 people in it. Now, remember, this was just not even four full years since they acquired the property in Guyana. And now there's 900 people expecting to come and live over on this land and Guyana is not it's beautiful but the area that they had is not nice it's not nice soil it's hard to grow things it's hard to do stuff and so these people arrived and had their fucking work cut out for them I'm god I believe it it had planned again it had been planned to be developed over a decade to house a thousand people not like two years two yeah. three years so Jimmy Jr. and his crew showed up and had to put in some work, or rather the crew, all the people, had to put in some work. People were working 12 to 13 hour days in the fields doing the work they needed just to survive. And again, let's remember, almost a third of the congregation was elderly. So yeah. how much can they actually do? And then you do have some teenagers, so you got some teen labor going on. But overall... They were keeping super busy, which is what you need your cult members to do if you want them to stay in line. Keep them tired. Also, they were secluded, and did I mention in a fucking jungle? So they were all alone. They were tired. But not only that, 
Jimmy Jr. was there with them. And Jimmy Jr. was in the jungle. And Jimmy Jr. was fucking tired. But you know what Jimmy Jr. did to help prevent him from being so tired? Drugs. Of course. (laughs) Lots and lots of drugs. He did drugs. He did drugs. So he had started doing drugs back in the States. You know, bear in mind, he's running up. He's working in politics. He's running some nursing homes. He's running a church. He's keeping up a fuck schedule. The man doesn't have time for sleep. So even though he professed to his people that drugs were bad, stay away from drugs, he's over here popping. Yes, he did. Drugs. He amphetamines did drugs. like crazy. And by the time he gets to Jonestown... We now see that Jimmy Jr. has donned his signature sunglasses. And that's because his eyes were so fucking red. He couldn't let the congregation look at his drug eyes. So he's wearing those sunglasses to prevent them from really seeing that he's on drugs. But now he's out here in the jungle with them doing even more drugs just to try to stay coherent and awake. And that facade is starting to drop a little bit. Yeah. But he can't let people see his facade dropping, right? So what does he do? He's got to keep them tired and scared. And if Jimmy Jr. wasn't sleeping, nobody else was fucking sleeping. He had a PA system wired throughout the whole camp that had a microphone in his chambers. And he would just talk for hours during the day, at night. Even if he didn't have anything to say, he would then play recorded tapes of his sermons over the PA system. We know this because there are recordings of him, like, speaking through the, the PA system all during the day. His people were in the jungle. They were in what was supposed to be a socialist utopia, but was instead the worst summer camp anyone could ever go to. Of course. They were working 12-hour days. Then they were sitting through meetings and sermons that Jim Jones held in the pavilion that would last for hours. And these meetings also included public beatings and humiliations. They did have a box that they would put people in when they were in major trouble, and sometimes they would bury that box in the ground. They would drug people, put them in a box to basically just break them so that they wouldn't fucking do whatever they did that got them put in the box in the first place. Yeah. And in whatever off hours they potentially had, Jimmy Jr.'s voice was being pumped through the loudspeakers at them. They were all fucking broken, but they were too tired to even notice it. And this hasn't even been a full year of living there yet and this is where we're at now you remember how jimmy jr fucking loved control think of it now as him having his own personal dollhouse complete with dolls all under his control and that also included who associated with who jimmy jr separated families the children slept separately husband and wives slept separately And if anyone in the camp wanted to fuck, they had to get approval from Jimmy Jr. himself. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Jimmy Jr. was also still fear-mongering his followers, of course. And the new enemy was the U.S. government and all the others who threatened their way of life. He had his people believing that the FBI and the CIA were coming to kill them 
So they needed to be prepared. And he would run these drills, and he called these drills White Knights. And I heard a few different reasons for why he called them White Knights, but it definitely seems like the main common thread is sort of racially charged, which is instead of people talking about there being dark days, those were dark days. He said, fuck that. Why does it have to be associated with dark? Why gotta be dark days? Why gotta be dark days? We gonna have white nights. And so he ran drills called white nights. And in one white night, Jones announced to his followers that the CIA were on their way to them now. And they had to take immediate action. So these big vats of Flavorade were brought out and everyone was told to drink up and that within 45 minutes they would all be dead. The ones who fought back were pushed to the front of the line by armed guards and forced to drink first as a precedent. Once the 45 minutes had passed, Jones announced that the entire drill had been a test and everyone had passed with flying colors. And no one said shit to him. No one was like, hey, um. Hey, don't ever fucking do that ever fucking again. Hey, uh, you know, dad, um, I really didn't (laughs) like it when you threatened to poison us and like force us all to like, maybe we could, could we just like go somewhere else? Oh my God. No, no one said shit. If anything, it seemed to strengthen their resolve. It gave him a common enemy. They didn't blame Jimmy Jr. They blamed everyone else who pushed them to that point, who forced their hand. And they were in this together. It's also been said that Jimmy Jr., for everyone who went over, he took their passports. We do know that he took their money. And when they went over, it made it even harder for people to leave. Not to mention that they were in a fucking jungle so it's not a viable option that they could just walk off campus. Like, yeah, they could just walk off, right, and go. You can't just go. The nearest right. port and airstrip was Port Kaituma, and I'm pretty sure that was a five-mile walk through, did I mention, fucking jungle. So that wasn't happening. It's all just, it's so much. It's so much on their plates that they don't even realize because they're being told that they're in a utopia and that this is what right. they've been working on. But in reality, they're, he's just piling on stress after stress after stress after fear after fear after fear. To and the of point course where- to them, they're like, if I'm unhappy, it's because I'm not doing this right. Like, I haven't fully committed myself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Some people would call it brainwashing. I don't know if I'd say brainwashing, but it's definitely like breaking you. Yeah. So we lead us to the end as people are getting more and more stressed, more and more exhausted. Jimmy Jr. included on all of that, but he's also just getting more and more drugged and dealing with the side effects of being constantly on fucking drugs. So the end begins with a child, which is super, might sound super weird. But the real move that ended Jonestown began over a custody battle. So Jimmy Jr. claimed that he was the biological father of a child called John Victor Stowen. 
Though the birth certificate listed Temple attorney Timothy Stowen and his wife Grace as the parents of the child, Jimmy Jr. claimed that Timothy Stowen had asked Jim to have sex with his wife Grace say, yep. to keep mm-hmm. her from defecting from the church. So please, please come have sex with my wife. I just really, really need you to have sex with my wife. And then that oh produced God. this child, John Victor sure. Stowen. Well, Grace, I guess that dick wasn't good enough because she still left the temple in 1976 and she began (laughs) divorce proceedings the following year. At that point, Jimmy Jr. ordered Tim to take the boy to Guyana in February of 1977 because for whatever reason, Tim Stowen, who knows if he actually told Jim to fuck his wife or if Jim was like, hey, Tim, I'm going to fuck your wife. And Tim was like, okay, Jim, whatever. Do you need some, do you need a condom? Jimmy Jr.'s like, no. No, I'm a raw dog. So at that point, Tim, after the child, after his wife leaves and divorces him, Tim's like, do you need anything else, Jim? And Jim's like, yeah, take this fucking kid to Guyana so that your ex-wife doesn't cause an issue. But Tim somehow finally came to his senses in February. Or no, Jim Jim told him to take the boy in February of 1977, and he did. And then Tim suddenly came awake from whatever roofie he'd been on in June of 1977, and he defected. But Jim Jones kept the child in Jonestown. So this kid, both of his parents left, but he was left in Jonestown. But this kid had been raised being told that he was Jim Jones' son. And not only that, but he was basically a boy god. Right? Basically. He's just basically (laughs) a boy god. And so that's the way they were raising him. Dope as fuck. And I, yeah, I can't even. That's another rabbit hole I can't go down. But I imagine little little baby John Stowen, that was him running around Guyana, like, fucking with people, just being, like, dope as fuck. And they're, like, we're... Dope as fuck. I'm on my 14th hour of working outside in the heat. Can you leave me alone? I'm a boy god. Dope as fuck. There's, like, damn dope it. Dope as fuck. I wish someone would poison oh god, that kid. <laughs> so Tim left in June of 1977, <laughs> and then in autumn of 1977, Tim Stowen and the Mills the family from the previous episodes, formed the Concerned Relatives Group, which you'll remember again from those previous episodes. Yes. Because they each had family still in Jonestown, and Tim did want to get his son back. And they ultimately gained access to California Congressman Leo Ryan. November of 1978. We're in the final month of Jonestown. Everyone showed up in 1977, and in November of 1978, it's all about to come crashing down. Leo Ryan led a fact-finding mission to Jonestown to investigate the allegations brought forth by the concerned citizens group. Jimmy Jr. was furious. He did not want this. But Marceline, yes, she's still around. She never divorces him. She never leaves him. She also doesn't show back up on his fuck schedule, like, ever. (laughs) Ever again. Ever at all. She said 
this could be a really positive opportunity. This could show the congressman that the people here were actually happy and there was nothing suspicious going on, and then maybe they could finally be free to grow their socialist utopia. And Marceline, granted because she was like the first wife, she was usually able to talk Jimmy Jr. down, and she was. And Jimmy Jr. agreed to have the congressman come in and see what they had going on. Yeah. He even made sure, though, that he prepped his congregation for what to expect. So they would hold rehearsals, and we have tapes of it. And they would hold rehearsals where Jimmy Jr. would ask members questions in what he dubbed his reporter voice, and then critique their answers until they were satisfactory. And I have a little clip of it for you. Right, Chief. Of course you do. Okay, let's see. Do you do you have uh, do you have any problem with worms here? Excuse me, there. Do you have any problems with worms here? Excuse me, Jim. Yeah. Uh, worms. Worms. I've never I've never seen any worms. I see. Don't worry. Have you ever been sick while you've been here? No, I've been in perfect health ever since you the gained, day I arrived. Have you gained weight or lost weight? I've gained weight. I see. All right, pass. So, yeah, he would just quiz them. And I've got like, it's like a 20 minute audio tape just that one time of him being like asking questions. You got any worms here? And then he gave a correct answer and he goes, all right, pass. Moves on to the next one. You got this? Well, now, if you're going to say it, I would say this. I mean, you might have heard it, but in the beginning, he says, you got any worms there? And he goes, worms, I don't know, dad. He goes, not dad, Jim. You can't call me dad. Like, we're practicing. November 15th of 1978, Leo Ryan, along with a few relatives from the Concerned Relatives Group, an NBC camera crew, and a few other reporters for various newspapers arrived in Guyana. On November 17th, Mm -hmm. Jim Jones hosted a reception for the congressman and the NBC crew, but not the other reporters from the National Enquirer because Jimmy Jr. had been butthurt by their paper in the past. Like, up until the very end, he's such a little cunt. (laughs) During this visit, (laughs) two important things happened. Number one, Leo Ryan stands up and expresses (laughs) that he's encountered mainly nothing but happy people who say that this is the best thing that's ever happened to them living in Jonestown, and he really sees no reason to pursue further action. And number two, a note is passed to Don Harris, an NBC correspondent, because they think that he's Leo Ryan, and the note reads, Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby. Please help us get out of Jonestown. November 18th, the next day, more people come forward to Leo Ryan asking to leave. It ends up being around a grand total of 14 people. So out of 900, only 14 people actually come forward and say they want to leave. However, Ryan, for whatever reason, when he made his plan to come visit, he hadn't budgeted on people wanting to leave with him. So this kind of changes his plans on leaving, and he decides he would send the defectors home on the car and plane that had originally been meant for himself, and he would stay behind another day in Jonestown to see if anybody else wanted to leave. Right before they all get on the car to, like, go to leave, this huge thunderstorm hits. 
Like, they describe it as being almost like the craziest, without realizing it, foreshadowing of what's about to happen. The sky turns dark. It opens up. It's scary. So they're all kind of stuck for a little while. And then it opens up and it clears. Yeah. And the 14 defectors, including a man named Larry Layton, boarded a truck to be taken to the airstrip. But then... As they're getting in the car and starting to drive away, a man named Don Sly attacked Leo Ryan with a knife to his throat. He was unsuccessful in his attempt, and in the struggle to remove Don from Leo, Don's hand was cut, causing a lot of the blood to end up on Congressman Ryan's clothes. Uh, Leo Ryan says, yeah, fuck that, and goes running after the truck to get picked up to like go back to the plane and you'll see some of the pictures because the NBC and the other uh, newsmen are taking video. They're taking pictures. And so you'll see video of Leo Ryan coming out and he's covered in blood, but it's not his blood because the attempt was thwarted. So the group had originally scheduled a 19 passenger plane from Guyana Airways to fly them back to Georgetown, which is like the main city. Yeah. But because of the defectors departing Jonestown, the group grew in number and now had to buy or had to get an additional aircraft. At approximately 5.15 p.m., as members of the delegation boarded two planes at the airstrip, Jones's armed guards called the Red Brigade, led by a Joe Wilson, a Thomas Kais Sr., and Ronnie Dennis, arrive on a tractor and trailer and they begin shooting at them. The gunman riddled Leo Ryan's body with over 20 bullets before shooting him in the face and then killing four others near the one plane. While at the same time, the other group that had gone to board the other plane had the fucking imposter Larry Layton with them, and he drew the gun that he'd been smuggling and began firing on the members of the party that were in that first group. So that fucking asshole was like, yeah, I want to leave Jonestown. And his plan was for all of them to get on a plane and then he was going to shoot the pilot and down the plane and take them all out. That, of course, didn't happen because they had to get to everyone in the plane, including the congressman. An NBC cameraman was able to capture footage of the first few seconds of the shooting at the first plane. Five people were killed at the airstrip, including Congressman Leo Ryan NBC reporter Don Harris, NBC cameraman Bob Brown, San Francisco examiner photographer Greg Robinson, and Temple member Patricia Parks. Meanwhile, back at Jonestown, Jimmy Jr. had begun the final White Knight performance. There is an audio from this entire evening. And if you feel up to it, it's very interesting to listen to all 45 minutes of this audio tape. I did listen to all of it. Of course you fucking Even though the tape is only around 45 minutes long, it is believed that from the moment Jimmy Jr. began recording and speaking to his congregation to the last moment people were alive was around four to five hours. Jimmy Jr. told his group that what had happened at the airstrip would be unforgivable. That he hadn't ordered that attack. They all did that on their own. But he knew that once they did that, 
everyone was going to be coming for Jonestown and there was nothing they could do about it. But like, again, I didn't order the attack. So like, don't blame me, blame everyone else. The congressman was dead and the CIA, the FBI, the Guyanese police would be coming for them and would torture them if they caught them. And now at this point, their only option was a mass suicide. Yeah, of course. Jimmy Jr. said that men would parachute in here on us, shoot our innocent babies, torture our children, torture our seniors, and that by committing a revolutionary suicide, they would be choosing their own end and dying with dignity. They brought out large vats containing flavor aid mixed with cyanide. They called it medicine or solution or potion. And people were urged, commanded, to drink the potion, and they were told that it would be painless and they would just go to sleep. Which is another fucking lie. Lie. Because cyanide is awful. It causes you to foam at the mouth with spit, blood, and vomit. Causes you to convulse. And the whole process could take anywhere from 5 to 20 minutes before you died. Children went first. Parents were ordered to bring their children up. Older children were urged to calm the younger ones. And some parents took the potion right after their children, causing entire families to be wiped out in one gulp. Jesus Christ. It's believed that those who went first might have thought that this was just another drill, that this was just another test, and that they were ready to pass it. Yeah. But once the people in the back saw the people who went first actually dying, they began to freak out. This is where we hear the reports that people were then injected. They were sometimes shot and sometimes both happened. Jimmy Jr., who in the very beginning of all of this had been a very well-spoken man, well-spoken preacher, he had now become a bumbling mess. In the final tape, he's heard stumbling over his words, slurring his speech. His demeanor was frantic, and the entire atmosphere in the commune at the end was entirely frantic. Yeah. I'll give a heads up now that the next piece of audio that I'll play is from the final death tape, and it gives you just a taste of where Jim Jones, one point a man, charismatic to get up to 3,000 people to follow him, believe in him. He got 900 people to move over to Guyana for him. He's now been reduced to this. I was respect die with a degree of dignity. Lay down your life with dignity. Don't lay down with tears and agony. It's nothing to death. It's like Max said, it's just stepping over in another plane. Don't, don't be this way. Stop this hysterics. This is not the way for people who are socialistic communists to die. No way for us to die. We must die with some dignity. Soon we'll have no choice. Now we have some choice. You think they're going to allow this to be done and allow us to get by with this? Must be insane. So yeah, he's urging them to die with dignity. 
You can hear the chaos that's going on in the background as the tape goes on and on during the middle of it. It's almost like a dull roar in the background of the people talking. You hear people screaming. You hear a lot of children screaming. At one point, he's urging, you hear him saying, mother, 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 please, you need to calm down so your child will calm down. He keeps urging them to die with dignity. But he himself is frantic and he's like, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. This has to get done. I don't know if that's because he really believed that people were coming or if he thought that if he didn't get this done, that they're... If we don't hurry up and do this, they're, they're all, all going to leave. And, yeah. yeah. In November 18th of 1979, 909 inhabitants of Jonestown, 304 being children, died, including Jim Jones himself and his wife, Marceline, who was found lying amongst the children. The last piece of audio that I will play for you is Jim Jones's final words that he says into the audio tape. And I'll just leave it with that. Take our life from us. We laid it down. We got tired. We didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. And in a degree, that was the hill that he died on. Yeah. We didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. Jim Jones was found lying on the ground in the pavilion with his head resting on a pillow. His cause of death was a gunshot wound to the head, which is believed to have been delivered by an Annie Moore, who was the last person to die in Jonestown. She was tasked with the final cleanup touches before she killed herself in Jones's office by a gunshot. The only two people who died by suicide gunshot in guns, Jonestown. Guns, yeah, instead of suicide guns rather than the people who were shot because they tried of, yeah. to run away, right? Exactly. Marceline and Jim's biological son, Stefan, and adopted son, Jim Jr., did not take part in the mass suicide because they were out playing with the People's Temple basketball team against the Guyanese national team in Georgetown. Before the mass suicide happened, Jones had radioed to them and had also radioed to other church bases in San Francisco to let them know it was time and that they should commit suicide. Stephen Jones, after receiving that transmission, he not only refused to die and commit suicide, he stopped his brother from doing it and he made sure the rest of the basketball team didn't go through with it as well. He also then got on the phone with all of the churches in San Francisco, stayed on the phone with them for most of the night, and not a single person took their lives outside of the group in Jonestown. In Jonestown. Minus four people. Yeah. Unfortunately, there were four who did heed that transmission. Sharon Amos, who was at the People's Temple headquarters in Guyana's capital in Georgetown, responded to Jones' radio call to kill themselves along with those at the settlement. And she obeyed Jones. 
She went into the bathroom with her three children, Krista and Martin Amos and Leanne Harris, her 21-year-old daughter. Sharon then slit the throat of her two children before slitting her own throat, as did her 21-year-old daughter, Leanne. God, that's awful. Overall, the Jonestown Massacre was the largest death toll of American citizens by a non-natural event until 9-11 happened. There's a lot more I could get into with the aftermath of Jonestown, such as the fact that the Guyanese police forces came in and raided it and raided the bodies before the Americans could get there. It was days and days before Americans could get there. Those bodies were left out in in the the summer Guyanese sun. I believe only seven bodies were actually autopsied. So they couldn't even test to be like, how did you die? Right. You know, was it just a gunshot? Some of some people were found with gunshot wounds. Some people were found with needles stuck in their arm. It's rough. Yeah. I want to express again at the end, no matter what Jim Jones says, this is not a revolutionary suicide. This is a mass murder that he did and he orchestrated and he was ready from the beginning. I don't know if he ever intended to leave Guyana. I think he figured if that didn't work, then he was done. Yeah. He wasn't going to lose. He was going to do it his own way. But the one thing that Jimmy Jr. wanted to go out as was a revolutionary leader. He wanted to go out proving this point, leaving again that legacy, leaving this this big, important dent in history. And yet, the only legacy he's really left behind is a punchline. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. The Kool-Aid. And it wasn't even Kool-Aid. And it wasn't even Kool-Aid. Yep. And with that, I close the book on my telling of the Jonestown Massacre and People's Temple. If you are at all interested by this, like I was, I urge you, there's a really great podcast called Transmissions from Jonestown. It's on Spotify. It includes almost all, it it includes all of the death tape. It includes a lot of the audio from Jonestown to really just give you an actual idea of, of what these people were thinking, what they sounded like, what Jim Jones sounded like. I then also urge you to go listen to the last podcast on the left. They do a five episode story on Jonestown that's incredibly detailed and goes further down the rabbit holes than I did. And then NBC's Datelines podcast a few weeks ago released a story talking about it from the journalist's point of view, which is incredibly fascinating. So there's a lot more research out there, a lot more to be told about Jonestown. And like I said, every time you look at it, you're just going to ask questions and you're not going to get answers. Just need more questions. Because I'm really sorry, Stephanie. I don't know why that monkey killed himself. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So with that, I give you another super long episode of just me talking, but I hope it was worth it. And I hope your mind is blown because mine was. And that is Jonestown. (laughs) That is Jimmy Jr. and the Jonestown Massacre. (laughs) 
I hope y'all. I hope y'all were into that. I hope y'all suck along. That was a wild fucking ride. Like that was yeah, a wild was. ride. He's crazy. Like crazy. Well, thank you for listening to Dead Time Stories. Right. Thank you guys so so much. Next week is our Christmas episode. It's going to be so much lighter. Thanks for tuning in. Oh my in. god, it's going to be a good time. Thank you so much. If you want to support our podcast, of course, the best way you can do that is by subscribing to our Patreon. We have one dollar, five dollar, and fifteen dollar tiers for our subscribers, and there's awesome stuff at every tier. It's a great time. You can also buy merch from our website, Dead Time Stories, all one word with a Z. dot com, and we also understand that you know 2020 happened so it's perfectly understandable if you can't do anything to support us financially there's a totally free super helpful way that you can you know still support our show which is by giving us a five star rating on itunes that little algorithm thing is how we find new listeners it's how we spread the word spread the gospel if you will I was going to say it also supports our ego, but both of those things make us sound like we're working on being cult leaders, you know, and spread the gospel and stroke our ego. That's, you know, that's what it is. So tell your friends to rate the show as well. Five stars. You can email us deadtimestories with a Z at gmail.com. And yeah, that's that is what it. it is what it is. I'm tired. I got to sleep and stop thinking about Jonestown. And Good I luck. Have, like Jimmy Jr.'s voice in my head. Good luck it's- stopping thinking about Jonestown. Girl. We'll see. Excuse me. Nice. I apologize. All right, everybody. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this has been Dead Time Stories. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Ferguson. Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Rennie Slackman. Hey, we can stick with the regular one. I just Are we keeping Leslie? No. I mean, if we stick with the regular one, I mean, obviously oh, he won't. Yeah. Obviously, he the- won't come along on the trip if we were to change it. He's obviously not going to say what we would say. That's different, like you know, that's diverting from the norm. That'd be crazy if I somehow was able to edit his voice. We just got to yeah. get a whole new cameo. <laughs> we just got to get a whole new cameo whole for this one, one episode. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Stephanie. <laughs> Hey, no, no, it's not Leslie, it's just us. (laughs)